Tonight you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says the builder for the Lord on it. That would be great. We are in Exodus 31 as we're coming into the home stretch. We'll be finishing Exodus at the end of the summer. And uh, it's been interesting uh, so far. And we're actually today wrapping up another section of the book. And this section is about uh, the tabernacle. We are going to come back to it again, but there'll be a break while they decide to ignore God and see what God does. But for now, we're wrapping up uh, this section uh, on the tabernacle. So let's begin with prayer, and uh, then we'll get after it. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We ask that, again, you would teach us from it. And we thank you for all these intricate details uh, that remind us how much you care about how we worship. That, that even these details are designed to reveal your glory and your greatness. Remind us of what makes you great. Remind us of what reveals your glory. Remind us that Exodus isn't just a history story, but a redemption story. And we need a redemption story. Thank you that this points us to our Redeemer. We need the salvation that he offers. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So as I was thinking about this text this week, um, I want you to consider this idea for a new reality show, new reality TV show. And uh, this goal is simple, that each contestant in this reality show will journey to a certain city, find a prescribed neighborhood, and assume a particular role. You can call it Find Your Place. That'll be the name of this new reality show. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. And in this case, it's no one tells you where to go or what to do when you get there. See, the host of the show identifies no city, designates no country, distributes no job des uh, descriptions, and all the contestants have to discern their destination by virtue of one thing, a bag of supplies. Each contestant is given a bag of supplies. And so upon leaving the starting uh, spot, they're given this bag, and that will provide the clues to this person's destination. So the host hands one person this uh, cowhide bag crammed with sweaters and a parka and a soccer ball. And in the side pocket, the contestant finds coins, Argentine coins. And then there's a teacher's attendance sheet from a language school. So it looks like the destination and position are starting to shape up. Another contestant is given diving equipment oxygen tanks, fins and goggles, someone's going near an ocean. He's also given tools, a wrench. Deep sea divers don't generally carry tools. And yet there's another clue, there's a book. It's a diagram of offshore drilling rigs. So this person's headed to a drilling platform. This will be an awesome show, don't you think? No? You have doubts? Too boring? We need to take your concerns to the originator of this plot because that's God himself. He develops these storylines and he actually enlists you 
as a participant. See, you didn't exit the womb with your intended career tattooed on your forehead. Most of you didn't exit college with your intended career. Um, there's no printout of innate skills that accompany your birth. But as life progresses, you begin noticing uh, gifts, talents, abilities, skills are revealed, knacks are uncovered, and God provides those. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's workmanship. No one else has your skill, makeup, or talent index, or gift package. I had to look up all those catchphrases. I, you know, an oil rig repairman is not going to feel at home in a schoolroom in Argentina. And if God made you to teach kids, you're not going to enjoy working on that drilling rig. And the kids in the classroom and the other workers on that offshore platform, don't they want the right person in the right job in the right place at the right time? Yeah, they do. And you do too. And God does too. You are the only you that he made. God made you and broke the mold. That can be positive or negative. But it appears that's what he did. He only made one of you. Psalm 33 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Every single baby is a brand new idea from the mind of God. And you can scan all of history uh, and look for your replica. And you won't find it. God tailor made you. He fashioned the hearts of us all. He personally formed and made each one of you. Isaiah 43 Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. It means there's no box of backup yous sitting in God's workshop. There's no backup you on iCloud or OneDrive. You can't buy a big enough Western digital external hard drive to back you up. You're not one of many bricks in the mason's pile or a dozen bolts in the mechanic's drawer. When it comes to you, you are it. And if you aren't you, then we don't get you. Now, some of you we don't get because you are you, but that's a whole other sermon. But if we don't get you, we all miss out. And with that in mind, that God personally formed and made each one of you, let's turn our attention to the how and why of who you are. Specifically, the how and why of what God has called each one of us to do. Today, I want you to think with me about two subjects, work and rest. And this is something that relates to every one of us. Regardless of age, experience, education, background, we're going to talk about something that's a critical part of our humanity, something that's a vital part of our lives, something that serves to make you, you. However, sort of the commonness of our subject doesn't necessarily mean that we do it very well. Everyone works and everyone rests. 
But the question is how we work and how we rest. And underneath that question is an even more important question about why we work and why we rest. In our journey in Exodus, we've come to these final instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle. God is in control of this entire operation. He's the source, he's the architect, he's the designer. We've looked at all the intricate detail uh, related to the construction of the tabernacle, the dimensions, the materials, the furnishings, the articles inside and out, the garments of the priests, the sacrifices. And then this section about the tabernacle ends with these helpful instructions regarding work and rest. So I want to walk you through Exodus 31 and talk about the biblical view of work and rest. See, the first amazing thing we learn from this passage is that we're supposed to be participating in God's work. Participating in God's work. Verses 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of her of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ashamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Now, I'm sure you're going to, like, pick your life verse out of there. See, chapter 31 is shifting from the details of the design to the giftedness of the people who will build the tabernacle. And particularly, we learn about two men specifically empowered by God to build this worship space. And their names are Bezalel, three syllables, and Oholiab. You should consider these names. Those of you that are expecting to have more kids, these are Bible names. It would be awesome. But these guys are more than craftsmen. I want you to think with me about the meaning of these names. Bezalel means in the shadow of God. That is under the protection of God. We've already said that's one of the things the tabernacle will symbolize. The tabernacle is going to dwell where? In the desert. It's covered with multiple layers. So it'll be the one place in a hot desert that's shaded, covered, and this man who's given the job of crafting it is named appropriately in the shadow of God, under the protection of God. On the other hand, Oholiab, another awesome name, means the tent of my father, or my father is my tent. Again, it contains the idea that the father is our protection. And that's very appropriate for the person 
who has the job of constructing the tent of meeting, this protecting place for the people of God where they can meet with the Lord safely. So these are two men gifted by God for the task of building a worship center for all of Israel. <clears throat> and the selection of these men and what's said about them, I think is as important as all the other details that have been previously mentioned for really the last six chapters. First, these men are specifically called by God for this work. Verse 2 says, See, I have called by name Bezel. Verse 6 says, I have appointed with him Oholiab. It's a very clear sense that God has a particular calling on these two men and the rest of the crew who will work on the tabernacle. They're not just craftsmen, they're divinely appointed craftsmen. Second, these men are filled with the Spirit of God for this work. Verse 3 states it plainly. I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Verse 6 points us in the same direction. I have given to all able men ability that they may make all I commanded you. First, I want you to note the connection here between creation and the tabernacle. There are ties between Moses' account of creation in Genesis and the instructions for the tabernacle. Just one example, look at the role of the Holy Spirit in creation and in the tabernacle. Not only is the Spirit present at creation, but he's the force behind the completion of the tabernacle. As God brings the world into being through his Spirit, he also brings the tabernacle into being through his Spirit. In fact, we see that the tabernacle is like a mini-representation of the universe that God's made. God orders all its design, all its components. He brings it into being like he does the universe. The tabernacle is like a little mini-universe created by God to remind us of something greater and grander and larger and more majestic. Third, these men express their calling through very tangible skills and abilities. Look at the list of the skills mentioned there in verses 3 to 5. Ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, artistic design, work in fine metals, cutting stones, carving wood, the ability to work in every craft. Verse 6 simply says that God gave all able men ability. And the gifts and the abilities given are as specific as the colors and fabrics and dimensions and design of the tabernacle. God has not only uh, intentionally identified the materials for the creation of the tabernacle, he's provided the skilled people to make it a reality. We need to kind of stop and think. Notice how many different kinds of art are listed in these chapters, and particularly here in chapter 31. In his excellent book, The Liberated Imagination, Dr. Leland Riken, he's a professor emeritus at Wheaton College, his son is now the president of Wheaton, um, points out that Bezalel uh, and Oholiab produce three major kinds of visual art. Symbolic, representational, and non-representational, what we often call abstract art. Symbolic art uses a physical form to stand for a spiritual reality. We do that. <coughs> Baptism, Lord's Supper. 
We use a physical form to stand for a spiritual reality. So next time we have the Lord's Supper, you can think art. You know, and it's see in the Bible, we see it here in Exodus, the ark symbolized atonement, the lampstand symbolizes the light of the glory of God. Representational art, <coughs> excuse me, I'm still recovering from pneumonia, so could be a, a long morning. Uh, representational art symbolizes uh, life by um, portraying some recognizable object from the physical world. Good example is, if you remember, <coughs> on the priest's robes, they had pomegranates. So they used something that people recognized, fruit, flowers, to symbolize something uh, about God. Non-representational or abstract art is pure form. Examples of this are the colors of the curtains in the holy place. The actual shape of the design of the tabernacle itself, the physical space. Now, some Christians think certain forms of art are more important or more godly than other forms of art. Usually symbolic art is prized, especially if it's religious symbolism. Representational art is prized because it imitates the world God has made. But Christians tend to criticize abstract art or non-representational art, especially as it's seen in modern art. And yet, abstraction has God's blessing just as much as any other art form. God loves all kinds of art in all kinds of media and all kinds of styles. John Calvin said, all the arts come from God and are to be as respected as divine inventions. Therefore, as Christians, we're not limited to crosses and calligraphy, although those are good. But God wants all the arts to flourish. Now, to be pleasing to God, art has to be true as well as good. Truth has always been an important aspect of art. Art serves as an incarnation of truth. It penetrates the surface of things to portray them as the way they really are. And the tabernacle is a good example. The whole building is designed to communicate truth about God and his relationship with his people. In order to fulfill this purpose, the artistry that goes into the tabernacle has to be true. It has to be true to nature. When it represents something in creation, like fruit or flowers, it has to be true to what God made also has to be true to who God is. Every part and piece of the tabernacle taught something about God. The ark symbolized his throne. The basin sign, uh, signified his power to wash away sin, so on and so forth. And to communicate these truths, the tabernacle has to tell the truth. So its art is in service to its truth. And the kind of art that glorifies God is good and true and beautiful. God is a great lover of beauty. Just look at creation, a collection of work that hangs in the gallery of the universe. Most of us had the experience of just being out somewhere and just being stunned by the beauty of creation. Whether you're at the beach or a mountain range or somewhere, you just kind of all of a sudden look out and like, wow, that's awesome. It testifies 
to the goodness and truth and beauty of God. The form is as important to God as function. So it's not enough for the tabernacle to be laid out in the right way. It has to be beautiful. There's beauty in the color of its fabrics and the sparkle of its gems and the shape of its objects and the symmetry of its proportions. The tabernacle is a thing of beauty. And God made sure of this by taking the unprecedented step of endowing its artists with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Everything in the temple would ultimately be used by God for his glory through the worship of his people. It's art for God's sake. That's what the tabernacle is all about as we go through all these intricate uh, details. It's a sacred building for the praise of God's glory. The altar and the mercy seat testify to God's grace. The table of the showbread uh, proclaims his providence. The lampstand spreads his light. And that's why it's made so carefully with such fine materials and fancy decorations. It's all for the glory of God. But every single bit of it would be constructed by specific people with specific God-given abilities. The work is prescribed by God, but it's also empowered by God. John Calvin once said, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. That's a great quote. The tabernacle is going to be physically be built by the people that God supplied and empowered. So here's my question. When you come to this and you think about you know, ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, artistic design, work in fine metals, cutting stones, carving wood, the ability to work in every craft. Do you see that physical work and that artistry and creativity and craftsmanship as empowered by God in the same way as preaching, teaching, and singing? Most Christians don't. But the Bible's real clear that we should. And I think it's remarkable that one of the very first biblical examples of the filling of the Holy Spirit is not given to a preacher or a teacher or a singer, but to craftsmen and artists. We have artists in our church. We have some really good artists in our church. If you go to our Facebook page, you'll see the artwork for Exodus. I want you to click on that and expand it. You know, sort of zoom in. There's some amazing detail there that you may have missed. And I know that because the original is in our office at the church and it's going to be framed and hung in our office. And... Uh, so I got to actually look at it. And I like, noticed details. I've been looking at that picture for almost a year. And I saw details that I had never seen before. Uh, that's art. To the glory of God. And uh, that happens. You know, before God ever fills the tabernacle with his presence, before the thing's even built, he calls and fills gifted people to make a place for him to dwell. One of the most revolutionary ideas coming out of the Reformation is the doctrine of vocation. Martin Luther called the people of God to celebrate the beauty 
of what God was able to do through him. He said, if God's called you to dig ditches, it would be a step down to be the preacher. That quote has been used a whole bunch of different ways. But he wants us to see our daily life, our ordinary work, is a vital part of what it means to be human and spiritual. God empowers the artists and the craftsmen who built the tabernacle just as much as he fills Aaron and the priests. Calvin believed that God not only cares about everyday work, but he also cares about the manner in which that everyday work is done. Alistair McGrath wrote an essay called Calvin and the Christian Calling. Suggests for Calvin, work was thus seen as an activity by which Christians could deepen their faith, leading it on to new qualities of commitment to God to do anything and to do it well. It's a fundamental hallmark of the Christian faith. We're going to have a Sunday school class on calling this fall. Some of you probably need to be there. He says, diligence and dedication in one's everyday life are, Calvin thought, the proper response to God. So all of us have been gifted by God and all of us have been called. But do we see life through that lens of the gospel, believing that God has graced us with forgiveness, frees us to not work for our salvation, but to see our work as part of God's grace working through and flowing out of our lives. The gospel allows us to see that everything we have is a gift and we are the means by which God is working in the world. The implications of that are actually pretty sweeping. Let me just highlight two. This uh, idea that God is working through us, that God's grace is working through us, infuses sort of the ordinary, everyday, mundane activities with spiritual significance. With this lens, there are no insignificant activities or useless expressions of your gifts or what you've been called to do. One of the things I've been called to do is be a grandpa. Sometimes I do that well, sometimes not at all. We had five uh, grandsons over this weekend. And at one point, I was upstairs, and I heard one of them downstairs screaming, and I hid in the bathroom. I was like, Grandma can handle this way better than I can. (laughs) She doesn't know that I hid. Don't tell her. uh, It was just like, ugh. So... She's home recovering. She, one of them got sick. She got sick. Went to the pool. She got sunburned. They're all fine. Though she's kind of a hurting this morning. But this idea of everyday stuff counts spiritually. Changes how we view our singleness, how we view our marriage, our parenting, our labor, our engagement with the culture all become a reflection of something very important. It means God has gifted you for what you do. The passions, talents, skills that you have were given to you. So use them. Celebrate the God who gave them to you. Second, it changes the whole idea of ministry and worship. In other words, where does real spirituality happen? Many people think it's expressed on Sunday inside the church. The ministry only happens on Sunday or in the context of worship. And it certainly does happen there. 
And if it doesn't happen there, it's not likely to happen anywhere else. But God's ultimate aim for Israel and for the church, we see back in Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The tabernacle's not the end game. It's the means to the end of reaching the world. In the same way, what happens here is designed to propel us into ministry every day out there. That's where we do our work. We're to use our gifts and our calling as a platform to glorify God. We need to see the beauty of God expressed in the variety of gifts that he's given and pursue those gifts, those God-given gifts, with passion and excellence. We need to see the power, enjoy the pleasure of divinely empowered work. When God built his tabernacle, he gave very detailed instructions, but he also gave skillful people whose beautiful work and craftsmanship are part of the story. And God has placed you where you are and given you the gifts that you have so that you can be part of your calling in and into the world. So the first amazing thing <coughs> we learn from this passage is we're supposed to be participating in God's work. But the second amazing thing we learned from this passage is we're supposed to be participating in God's rest. In God's rest, verses 12 to 18. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generation that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So after all of this intricate detail about how the tabernacle was to be constructed, and after the specific calling and gifting uh, of uh, Bezalel and Oholiab, you might read this think it's all about work. But immediately following all of those instructions, six chapters of instructions, God gives a final word about the importance of Sabbath rest. And although the tabernacle is sacred space, it's space that God has appointed for his worship. And the Sabbath is sacred time appointed by God for his worship. And Moses is showing us here in Exodus 31 that sacred time takes priority over sacred space. In other words, he said, look, I've given you instructions uh, for the tabernacle, and I want you to build it, but you still can't work on the Sabbath, even though you're building my house, God's tabernacle. You're to take God's rest, even in the building of God's house. So God's sacred time takes priority over God's sacred space. And verse 12 begins with a statement, and the Lord said to Moses, I think this is, it appears many times in Exodus, but I think it's also a parallel back to Genesis and to creation 
and God said. And it brings to completion the instructions regarding this sort of peace of heaven on earth. God ends this creation in the same way he ended the first creation, with rest. God's statement in verse 13 is actually really important. He says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Notice three things here. First, there's more than one Sabbath. God mentions Sabbaths, plural. Rest is embedded into the fabric of human life. We have to rest every day. And the people are commanded to rest one day a week. The fields get rested every seventh year. And every 50th year is the year of Jubilee. And it's a time for corporate rest. And it restarts all property ownership and resets all indebtedness. Uh, so it basically wipes all that out. So there's more than one way to look at Sabbath and to look at rest. Second, Sabbath connects people to their creator. Uh, there's a principle here which says something important about our relationship with God. The text says, this is a sign between me and you. It's a statement, it's a reminder that God brought them out of bondage and into rest. Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. Why? Because slaves don't rest. They don't get a day off. You know, for the slaves who have been freed from Egypt and brought out, and they hear this news that you get to rest every seventh day. They haven't gotten a day off in 400 years. This is awesome news. You know, sometimes we treat it like it's a burden. For them, it would have been hallelujah. You know, we've, we've never had this. In my entire life, I've never had a day off. God's going to give us a day of rest. And not just once. Every week. We need to start seeing the Sabbath as a blessing and not a burden. Tim Keller writes, he has a book called uh, Every Good Endeavor. It's a wonderful book about the whole uh, doctrine of work. And uh, he says, anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave, even a self-imposed one. Your own heart or a materialistic culture or an exploitative organization or all the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is a declaration of our freedom. It means you're not a slave, not to your culture's expectations, your family's hopes, your medical school's demands, not even to your own insecurities. It's important you learn to speak this truth to yourself with a note of triumph. Otherwise, you'll feel guilty for taking the time off and you'll be unable to truly unplug. Sabbath rest is a celebration of freedom that's designed to point us towards God. And then third, it reinforces God's sanctifying power. There is a purpose statement at the end of verse 13. It's very important that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The point of Sabbath is to remind you that all of life depends on God. Sabbath reinforces that it's God's power and God's provision that makes life possible. You know, we are totally dependent people. <coughs> but our work leads us to believe that we're autonomous, that we're independent, that we're self-sufficient. 
And we can easily be persuaded that by working harder and harder and harder that we can take care of ourselves. And you see, observing the Sabbath is a statement about trusting God and not yourself. It's a rest that says, my life is dependent upon you, Lord. That's why verses 14 to 17 are loaded with such strong warnings why the Sabbath is supposed to be practiced from generation to generation. To violate the Sabbath <coughs> is to essentially disregard God's role in your life. It's an act of self-centered independence. The choice to not rest is the choice to be one's own God. To practice Sabbath means that you're regularly being reminded that you're not the center of the universe. That it's not all about you. Hopefully that's not new news to any of you. You know, and that your work, while that's good and right and excellent, ultimately that's not what's keeping you afloat financially. It's not what's providing for your family or helping you add value or keeping you in good standing with your boss. God is the one behind all that not your amazing productivity on the job. And Sabbath is also a statement that you can't get good grades, find the right mate, make your uh, house a home uh, haven, uh, raise godly kids, maintain your health, and have enough money in retirement all on your own. Sure, there's a lot for you to do, but nothing is ultimately accomplished just by you. It's beyond your ability to keep your life put together. And unfortunately, there's many of you who are functionally declaring that life depends on you. And you're filled with anxiety because all the loose ends in your life are driving you crazy. So we heard from Paul earlier, we live in Loudoun County. It's like anxiety central. Others are angry because you're trying to regain control uh, by emotions forcing the situation to be, sort of be bent in your direction. Others are stingy, hoarding your money and stuff because you either like what your stuff says about you or you like the security it brings or you don't give because your money makes you feel powerful. And you don't understand a you know, Sabbath rest for a field. You know, having a field and intentionally not using it for a whole year, that's crazy. But yet God made the Israelites even give their fields a Sabbath rest. This idea of Sabbath rest, the intentional stopping of normal activity, is a great antidote to our desire for self-sufficiency. Sabbath's a reminder of what's really important and who's really important and what's really valuable and who's really valuable. So as much as I want to call you to use your vocation and calling and giftedness, for as much as I want you to work really hard at mastering the God-given skills you've been given. For as much as I want you to experience the pleasure of God in what you do, remember the Sabbath principle that your value, your identity, your purpose, your success is not based on what you do. Your value, identity, purpose, and success is rooted in your relationship with God. Think about all that we've learned in Exodus. The Israelites, they're former slaves. They've been rescued by God. And that orientation and mindset changes everything about their lives. It's the, the hallmark story of God in their whole history. 
God rescues them. It marks them forever. And the full story of redemption is finally revealed in the life of Jesus, who comes as the new Israel, lives perfectly under the law, dies for the sins of those who receive him, and rescues people who are powerless to change their slavery to sin. That's the gospel, the good news that God came into the world to save sinners. And the gospel changes why you do good things. If doing good things is the way that you're made right with God, then it will lead to a life of perpetual fear, exhaustion, and a complete performance-based mindset. But that God forgives sinners based on the finished work of Christ, and he does so permanently and completely, that's just amazing grace. The fact that we're no longer condemned, but are chosen, loved, sealed for all eternity, it's stunning. And so every good thing we do is a gift from God who's already been so gracious to us, and every good thing we do is now something that points back to God in gratitude for what he's given. Good works are truly good when they're practiced through him and to him and for him. In this way, the gospel transforms every aspect of our life into an act of worship, truly making us living sacrifices. But the gospel also makes rest possible. If your life depends solely on you, there's no way you can ever really rest. I mean, you can take a vacation, occasionally sleep well, you might even take a nap this afternoon. But your soul will be constantly striving to meet some spiritual deadline, and you'll run and run and run and run, and the finish line will never appear. True rest begins by resting in Christ. And by understanding deep within your soul that you are not your own, you're bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It frees you not only to work hard, but to rest happy. And in this way, the Sabbath is deeply rooted in the gospel. You know, we're all haunted by this unhealthy kind of work, this need to prove ourselves, to gain a sense of worth and identity. But if we experience gospel, Sabbath, rest, in our hearts, we can be free from the need to earn our salvation through our work. And just as God says he rested and was refreshed, it says that about the Lord. He rested and was refreshed. Well, that one then becomes true of us. We rest and we get refreshed. Our perspective is restored. Our passion is renewed. So feel the pleasure of God in your work, but make sure you make time to not work. Lest you think that work is the only ultimate thing. God has made work and rest, and both are to point to him. See, in both the Old and New Testament, God's design is to transform ugliness into beauty. He did it finally with the body of his son, raising Jesus from the dead, giving him this glorious resurrection body, more beautiful than anything we can imagine. And yet his body still bears the marks of his crucifixion. We know this because Jesus invited his disciples to touch the places where he was pierced, but those ugly wounds have been transformed into glory. For all eternity, the body of Jesus will bear reminders of the suffering he endured for our sin. But it's now been transformed into glorious beauty. And God's going to do the same thing with everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. 
Whenever you get discouraged by the ugliness of your sin, you need to remember that we're still works in progress. And one day, the very best of artists will take everything that's been disfigured by our depravity, and by his grace, he will transform us into works of beauty that will be a joy forever. Our salvation is directed by a, a redemptive craftsman who's not willing to let you just be you. He's much too good an artist for that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We acknowledge that through the finished work of Christ on the cross, we belong to you. We belong to you as your creation. You made us, you formed us, you designed us, and someday you'll perfect us. Help us to live in eager expectation of that day in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. God bless you. I won't see you next week. I'll be up in Pittsburgh baptizing the newest grandson. So take care. Have a great week.